Hello and welcome back to A Better World. This is your host, Mitchell J. Raven, and I'm very glad you're joining us again today. You probably thought that I froze, seeing as I'm speaking about the coldest places on Earth. Eh? You thought I froze? Well, no, not really, I didn't. But this is something that we ought to really take a good long look at because we are dancing really on the edge, as an article I wrote some time ago uh, called it, and did a radio show on it as well. Dancing on the edge, and another way of putting it is actually dancing with death. Well, uh, dramatic, perhaps a nice little alliteration indeed, but it doesn't end there. No, no, no. It's really just kind of beginning. What am I referring to? Well, I think you know. Those of you who listen with any regularity to this show knows that know that I am, um, I don't want to say uh, preoccupied, but I am heavily, heavily focused on the disposition of our ecosystem as it has emerged as a result, and managed to sustain, even as a result of the onslaught of Homo sapiens. I would like to say intelligens, but I'm sure it's not so intelligent. So I'm having some trouble with that that phrase. Well, what am I talking about there? Well, if you puncture a body and you pry it and extract from it and poke it in every single way, shape, and form, if you take its precious air and pollute it, its water, and contaminate it and its soil and genetically modify it, you end up with a mess, a veritable mess on your hands. So, well, next variable. Do that over the course of 100 years, 200 years, and you have a mess. So that's what we have today, a mess. Well, that doesn't sound like a very scientific term. Well, you know, it's not, but it's a very subjective term that says a lot and well will facts and figures and statistics really convince you any more than saying it's a mess you know so 350.org says that there should not be more than 350 particles per million in our atmosphere of co2 well We're beyond that, and we've been beyond that for some time, and as a result, we have this phenomenon we refer to as global warming. And I'll just kind of deconstruct that a little bit for you, which is to say that when the atmosphere heats up sufficiently as a result of CO2 gases and other what are called greenhouse gases are trapped in the uh, atmosphere, Um, and when I say trapped, it means that they're not able to simply um, dissipate because the concentration is so great, and with the concentration so great, uh, it acts as a filter, and the natural flow, the natural cycle of air uh, that would circulate in the ways that nature arranged for it to circulate stops happening and the refreshment of the air doesn't happen. So there is a level of toxicity that's in the air and a heaviness as well because I believe that the greenhouse gases are are a little heavier and as a result we get this kind of toxic tank effect and greenhouse gas effect. Uh, And they call it greenhouse 
because of what happens inside a house or a greenhouse. I mean, because everything gets trapped inside and doesn't release. There isn't a natural breathing, an inhale and an exhale that we, of course, are uh, designed to do, and so is the atmosphere. Um, wind, there are any number of things that help to assist in the breathing of the atmosphere. Uh, and we end up living in a toxic tank or a toxic soup, and uh, the heat rises, and when the heat rises, ice melts, and we get warm, and all sorts of uh, downstream, no pun intended, consequences begin to occur. Now, people like our president, poor soul, says when we had the polar vortex out in the Midwest, well, it hit lots of places, including New York, uh, just a few short weeks ago, uh, said, well, so much for global warming. It just shows the ignorance this man uh, possesses. He possesses ignorance. He is truly uneducated. And what I mean to say is that when greenhouse gases are trapped, as in a greenhouse, in our atmosphere, what it does is it creates such havoc in the ecosystem that all weather events are enhanced, exaggerated, amplified, like that, in both directions of heat and cold. Why? Because the system is thrown off. Everything is thrown off. So you end up getting anomalous weather patterns, things that we cannot predict, that our computer models, which once were fairly able to be predictive, are no longer able to be so because the system is so abnormal. It is so out of alignment with its natural, no pun there again, uh, ways because we have brought forth through our actions uh, an unnatural uh, context, state of things, and we are suffering profoundly because of it. So much so that I would name today's show what I did, which of course, if you didn't see it, is Mitchell Speaks of the Coldest Places on Earth. You would think immediately the Arctic, the Antarctic, South Pole, North Pole, right? Well, they're melting. They are melting. And that's what I mean. What was, what were, the coldest places are starting to warm up. They are melting. And other places are even colder than the North Pole. I don't know what Santa Claus is going to do, but some polar bears are packing their bags. Anyway, I'll, I uh, looked up a um, another definition that's probably a bit more elegant than what I shared with you uh, of global warming, which is this. A gradual increase in the overall temperature of the Earth's atmosphere generally attributed to the greenhouse effect caused by increased levels of carbon dioxide, chlorofluorocarbons, and other pollutants. Yeah, about 40 or so other major pollutants, those that we've identified, and there might even be another 40 or 42 pollutants that we haven't yet identified because the problem is way bigger than we are, and we are like a little fish swimming upstream in understanding the nature of nature. So uh, it's just, it's just, it's just enormous. It's just an enormous, enormous problem. So here, let me uh, share with you a little bit further uh, in depth about the nature of global warming, and um, and uh, its causes. 
Global warming occurs when carbon dioxide, CO2, of course, and other pollutants and greenhouse gases collect in the atmosphere and absorb sunlight with solar radiation that have bounced off the Earth's surface. Normally, this radiation would escape into space. That's that breathing I was referring to, the exchange, air exchange, heat exchange, cool exchange. But these pollutants, which can last for years to centuries in the atmosphere, trap the heat and cause the planet to get hotter. That's what's known as the greenhouse effect. And in the United States, the burning of fossil fuels to make electricity is the largest source of heat-trapping pollution, producing about 2 billion tons of CO2 every year. Coal-burning power plants are by far the biggest producers, uh, polluters. The country's second largest source of carbon pollution is the transformation, uh, transformation sector. My, my bad, as they say, no, no, the transportation sector, that was very funny, which generates about 1.7 billion tons of CO2 emissions a year. Curbing dangerous climate change requires very deep cuts in emissions, as well as the use of alternative, uh, to, alternatives to fossil fuels worldwide. The good news is that we've started a turnaround. CO2 emissions in the United States actually decreased from 2005 to 2014, thanks in part to new energy-efficient technology and the use of cleaner fuels. And scientists continue to develop new ways to modernize power plants, generate cleaner electricity, and burn less gasoline when we drive. The challenge is to be sure that these solutions are put to use and widely adopted. Well, this website from which I am reading uh, is not up to date, sadly, because while there was a steady decrease from 2005 to 14, uh, it is my understanding that in the year of 2018, it actually climbed back up, not to the levels before 2014, and 2005, but they still went up instead of down. And that, in these circumstances, is nothing short of alarming. At this point, we simply cannot afford a, an uptick instead of a downtick. Some say it doesn't even matter <clears throat> because we have passed so many tipping points that the ecosystem is in some way in a free fall be such because we cannot see most of what's going on. I mean, and that goes for life itself, doesn't it? Uh, we cannot see uh, what is really happening in the invisible world. And the invisible world could be understood as what's happening energetically. It could be understood as what's happening spiritually. But it can also mean what's happening on a molecular level, which we do not see. So I don't think that all of those are actually separate. But uh, to stay material about it, it's to say that there are molecular and atomic, <clears throat> subatomic changes that are occurring in the very nature of things because they are being influenced unnaturally by the elements which have been so heavily polluted and contaminated. The air, the water, the soil, and when you do this, for extended periods of time, it is an assault on these elements. These elements are what actually sustain our lives. So we're dealing with a big thing here, we're dealing with a big, big thing. By the way, I want to actually invite y'all to call in today, if you would like to, to 602-753-1860. I know that uh, listeners live are few and far between these days. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
But I do want to make that available. The number again is 602-753-1860. You never know who's going to pop up and uh, show up and say some awfully awesome things. So I do want to let you know that those doors are open for today. Now, uh, you ask, I tend to speak a lot about the problem. Uh, In fact, soon we will have uh, Dar Jamal, the author of The End of Ice, coming onto the show, and we'll be speaking with him about his direct experience as a journalist, and you can say at this point quasi-scientist, about what he has observed firsthand in going to different, (laughs) shall I say, hot spots um, and cold spots across the planet, from, yes, of course, the Arctic Circle down to the Amazon. Uh, I think he went also to the Congo, the second lung, as we say, of the planet, the second largest rainforest. And what he has observed, and it's a sorrowful tale to tell. Why is all this happening? I mean, are humans that dense that they do not see that they are sawing off the plank on which they stand, and if they saw it off, we uh, end up in the pool, the ocean, or at this point, perhaps best said as the cesspool. So that's what we're really dealing with here. It's a profoundly serious condition of suicide. It's homicide and suicide at the same time. Well, you could say that about any number of actions and behaviors of human beings. And, you know, you wouldn't be wrong. There's a a dose of death along with a dose of life in everything. So, yeah, as uh, the Vedic understanding from uh, beautiful Mother India has taught us, that there is Vishnu as well as Krishna and Shiva. And they all live together side by side. You've got the creation cycle and you've got the destruction cycle. And, well, they seem to have an intimate relationship therein. So, who are we? What would have us want to live and to live well, to care for ourselves? Well, my own instinct says that we all want that. Excuse me. We all want to live and be alive and thrive and beget more life. As life begets life, so death begets death. As movement begets more movement and stillness begets more stillness. It's, It's a law of physics. So we want to pay attention to that too. But so, in other words, a body in motion tends to stay in motion, a body at rest tends to stay at rest. And I say a body that stays alive tends to stay alive and want more life and, well, in some way, vice versa. It's a discussion. So this thing about more life, it's sort of like a little bit more oxygen, and a little bit more healthy food and a little deeper rest generating theta and delta waves and when in movement being gloriously in movement whether that's running or dancing or sprinting or whatever the motion may be the exercise we express is a sign of our vitality. Now, we're programmed at very early ages in so many different ways. I have said many times that we start getting programmed, actually, in the first trimester in the womb. 
our bodies are picking up energy, even if it's pre-linguistic. <clears throat> and if our mother is radiant and happy, we feel that our cells are actually responding to and responsive toward happiness. But they're also responsive to sadness or grief or anger or rage. And so if our home life in the womb and the home life of the mother with, let's just say, the father is harmonious and loving and full of laughter and joy, so this will be communicated to the fetus, the embryo and the fetus. And it continues on through the trimesters. And it continues on after the travel, the adventure down the birth canal, if it's not a cesarean. And voila, you now have a baby that is tending towards smiling than grimacing. <clears throat> In fact, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. When my sister was pregnant with her first child, um, we used to, of course, get together. And I am sort of prone to laughter. I like to make jokes. Oftentimes they're not the greatest. But there's a good amount of humor in and around my field. And if it's not me laughing, it's others laughing, but it's usually both of us laughing. And that creates a sort of levity, yes, and a lightness in the space. So when she was born beautiful Alexandra, who just gave birth to her own child, her second child, just last week. Um, after she had been around for a few months in the flesh, and I came to visit, and I said, hello, Alexandra, how are you? And I laughed at something or another, and she looked at me like, with recognition. I know that laugh. I know that. I recognize it. You could see it in her precious little baby face. And my sister and I looked at each other and said, oh my, it's true. She really does recognize it. So what is she recognizing? She's recognizing the energy behind the laugh. She's recognizing the sound, the tone and the frequency of the laugh, all of those things combined. And that's what we would call recognition, an audio auditory recognition. Uh, and so we all kind of live by that, especially when we're in the womb <clears throat> and we don't yet have uh, eyesight dial sense from outside the world. So it's all kind of interesting. So going back we get programmed, we get conditioned uh, to first the world of our parents, mainly our mother, but it actually includes the whole, as we say in Chinese, mishpucha, the whole family. And uh, I'm kidding, you know, that's really Yiddish for family. And it can be extended family as well. Anyway, <clears throat> the conditioning continues based on the values the priorities, the perspectives, the worldviews, the attitudes of largely the parents, and then later the siblings, and then the circle extends outwardly to ex toward the friends and the neighbors, and then the extended family, and on it goes later on, teachers and others. But that early conditioning, as cellular biologist Bruce Lipton was saying on these airwaves just a few weeks ago in January, about the power of the early programming that occurs. And he's just completely right. And we have evidence of this from the major psychoanalysts, of course, Sigmund Freud and Carl Jung and Otto Rankin. <clears throat> Uh, Wilhelm Reich and uh, Roberto Azagioli, but we also have it from the intense
intensely wonderful uh, studies of prenatal psychology um, connected to but also distinct from the early psychoanalytic work. So when you have this confluence of, of, of variables influencing the embryo, the fetus, the infant, you are going to get all sorts of different maps in the brain, different types of wiring, and different types of understandings. So (laughs) I asked the question, how did it happen that we have been in a real way committing suicide? Well, I know it's a fairly deep question, uh, and I appreciate that. And it would actually take me much longer to wind that out more time than I would have currently to do so. But I do want to say that we inherit and we are conditioned by attitudes that are something short of just the natural tendency to live and let live and to express life in its most vital, optimal forms and let life continue to build on life. We start to receive uh, attitudes that say, ah, life ain't so hot. Again, pardon the expression. Life ain't so great. Uh, you win some, you lose some. You know, there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of suffering. There's a lot of hurt. There's a lot of disappointment. There's a lot of hypocrisy. There's a lot of grief. People come, people go. People do not keep to their word. People hurt each other deliberately. Others, if you're not hurt deliberately, you'll be hurt unconsciously by some. And people tend to look out for themselves oftentimes more than they look out for others. People can be greedy. People can be stingy. People can be hurtful. And on the list goes of little remarks that we hear, sometimes, as I said, from our parents, sometimes our siblings, and on it goes and unwinds. Now, I'm not saying that we believe all of those things. Some of them, of course, have merit. Others do not so much. Excuse me. Uh, But... We have imbibed them. We have been imbued. Our subconscious is picking it all up and registers it, records it, and it goes into our consciousness and does, in fact, affect our mind and our conscious self as well. We may not remember the source of it all, but it is there. So, in a sense, when we are populated by other than just pure life and pure vitality and the love of life, we can then also make choices that are less than just uh, conferring more life. You see where I'm going with this. We start uh, compromising our own innate intelligence of life begetting more life and sort of like eat the foods that just generate life, do the activities that just generate life, then we begin to kind of get compromised. And we say, well, you know, a little of this ain't so bad, a little of that ain't so bad. And we will um, make, in the case of food, taste and enjoyment and pleasure uh priority to um, uh, to food as medicine, which we were taught many years ago. Uh, let food be thy medicine and medicine thy food, which are wise words that come to us, of course, from ancient Greece and the first doctor. So we, in short, begin to compromise through our habits, through our behaviors, through our attitudes, through our words, through our actions, 
And little by little, we are not as vital and life full, but we carry a little of this and we carry a little of that. Well, part and parcel of that programming, I'm really kind of uh, expediting this, is to say thinking of just oneself. Because we survived, as I've had many people on to talk about this, Lynn McTaggart, who wrote The Bond and The Intention Experiment and many others, the field has talked so much about the neuroscience that shows us that we have actually survived through community, through being social. It's not one man out for himself. Uh Uh-uh. That is a serious misunderstanding of the science, for sure, and even, I believe, of Darwin. So it's not each man for himself, survival of the fittest, in that kind of way. It's let's all hang out together. Let's, as a group, as a tribe, um, ward off the predators and gather food and nuts and berries, and let's have a feast together. And that also allows for love and bonding, which also means the uh, uptick of oxytocin. And then you've got a wonderful type of uh, human culture beginning to emerge. This is the good stuff, folks. But over time, with the advent of agriculture and the advent of what became known as private property land for growing, so uh, Mr. Jones could grow more than Mr. Smith next door and have more, uh, many more crops in the marketplace to barter or sell and therefore can maybe attract more wives or have more art artifacts, more art, what have you. And so that whole enterprise, no pun intended, begins and begins to unfold and flesh out until finally we have a full-blown system that's based on acquisition, it's based on self instead of group, and we have ultimately a mess on our hands where a couple of individuals, for instance, buy politicians, and there aren't that many of them, and buy them and dictate to them, really, truly dictate what laws should pass, which ones should not. And the laws that pass are ones that are in the favor of a handful of these few landowners, um, corporate owners. And before you know it, you've got hundreds of millions of people who are being disadvantaged because there were a few, to use the classic sense uh, term, landowners barons who are controlling the entire story, the whole fort, because they had the money to buy off the decision makers in the government. So you see how perverse the whole thing became, and I'm saying that it has a lot to do with the advent, commencement of agriculture. Well, it's not only me who say this. There are who says this. There are many people who say says who say this, and one of the most interesting ones comes from a novel called Ishmael. If you haven't read it, it had a profound effect on me, and it's a very interesting way to learn about the history of humanity and who you learn it from. Well, I cannot tell. I cannot tell. We are all who read the book sworn to secrecy. And you'll understand when you read it, why. So I'm going to leave that at that. But I'm going to very much fast forward to say that uh, what we have today is a truly perverse, distorted sense of human relationship and human kinship and human grouping And our social lives are uh, inundated, conditioned, programmed 
by a lot of stuff that really probably shouldn't belong there. And it has led to a, a, in the United States, a Congress that is very heavily lobbied. And in order to get elected, you need millions and millions and millions and millions of dollars, which means you need people that are backing you. And oftentimes, nine times out of ten, that's corporations backing you, which means ultimately that you are doing their bidding. And this is a scary state of affairs because, again, it just reiterates that there are a few very wealthy people, by and large, who call the shots. And, well, some of the wealthy people became wealthy during wars. Let's just look at, you know, to stay relatively modern, World War One, And then we had World War Two, And then we had the Korean War. And then later we had the Vietnam War. And I'm just citing the big ones. There were always, you know, skirmishes, so to speak. Armed conflicts, they call them. All sorts of interesting rhetoric. But at any given time, if you take a snapshot of U.S. history, you will see that we have been at war in dozens of places simultaneously. Some are big, some are medium, or some are small. Some are known, some are not. Sometimes it's just the CIA, um, you know, uh, uh, spying around, but they've got loaded guns and kill people. Sometimes they kill heads of states. So it's not innocent and it's not really small, even if it appears to be in volume. And as a result of these wars, there has been an enormous, the military arms sector. That means guns, that means bullets, that means rifles, that means tanks, that means uh, armaments of every size, shape, and form, every last little uh, gizmo that gets developed, like night goggles, be able to see the enemy at, in in night, uh, planes that cost billions of dollars each. They fly this way, they fly that way, they fly upside down, they fly uh, in ways that they cannot be detected. Radar, submarines, I mean, there is an entire war economy that squashes everything else. It's probably the largest of them all, second only probably to the pharmaceutical, what we call big pharma. These are, and then next to the chemical, these are the most enormous and dangerous uh, um, areas and industries. And they dominate our economy, and they dominate the Pentagon, and they dominate our Congress. And yes, they employ people. So what? It's a war machine. Who cares if it employs somebody? Is that so noble if your your job is all about building missiles? No, I say no. Others will heartily disagree. You know that. I say absolutely not. Not maybe not. I say absolutely not. In a world where we have such profound, brilliant technology having to do with solar and geothermal and wind technology and tidal technology and ocean technology and pumped hydro and, oh my God, so many things, wonderful ways of nourishing soil and planting seeds and doing hydroponics and doing aeroponics. There are all of these awesomely creative ways of getting employed. You don't need the missile industry for employment, except if you are lazy and you just want to keep the status quo going. It's unfortunately unfortunate that we ever had wars. I think. But there were some loose cannons, no pun intended, that were out and like Hitler and we had to build up a war machine for a period of time to deal with that madness. 
because it appeared that there was no negotiation, not with this guy. There are, I think, almost always ways of negotiating, uh, but the answer is not always. And for that wee little amount of not always, we don't need to be spending 26 times more on our war efforts and on our military than all other nations. Actually, we're, I think the phrase is, we're, if you take the top 26 nations beneath us, China, Russia, all of the EU and beyond, their military budget does not equal ours. Nowhere near. But this is what goes on when you have a fear-based world and a fear-based, war-based economy and a threat-based economy. It's just outrageous. And the American people have allowed this to happen. Well, if they allow this to happen, they'll also allow lots of other things to happen. And that's really my point. They've allowed this phenomenon of pollution. Forget global warming for the moment. They've allowed pollution of our air, pollution of our water, pollution of our soil, the literal, veritable destruction of rivers, dumping all sorts of horrible things into the Hudson River, into the Mississippi River, into the Colorado River. And this has been going on for a hundred years, a hundred fifty, two hundred. When was the Industrial Revolution revolving? That's right. You got it. You can do the arithmetic. It's a horror show. And we back. I was a, a young lad in the sixties, but we were beginning to raise our voices and say, "No, this is not okay. No." I don't care if you're big business. Since when is a dollar more important than our rivers and our lakes? Stand up and say so and stop the bludgeoning of nature. Because that's what it is. I should write an article called The Bludgeoning of Nature. And that, my friends, has led to, if you pollute long enough and you contaminate everything long enough, you will be getting tremendous uptick in respiratory diseases, in digestive problems, and skin problems, um, and cancers, and all sorts of degenerative conditions, as well as you're going to have uh, a world where you can hardly see each other because the pollution is so great. So all of that has to be dealt with. And if you don't deal with it quickly enough and persistently enough, you end up with a condition, uh, a truly fatal condition, called global warming. And that's, of course, what we're in now. And, you know, so we wake up, and the sun is out, and it looks beautiful, and it's a gorgeous day, and we want to go out and run and walk and feel fantastic and smell the flowers and play some tennis and <laughs> ride the bike and all of that. I experience that all the time. Even in the winter, I get some of that. Um but that doesn't mean that underneath there isn't. It's like a volcano that is simmering for years. And then one day, and that's the way it goes. And that's what's going on right now. And the coldest places, or what were the coldest places, and now are becoming warmer places. And this is a problem of immense unspeakable proportion because it means that not only human life but all sentient life probably except for uh, uh, cockroaches and fungus will make it through you know eventually or and it's a big beautiful or we do something about it and we do it quickly well for some it's quick for others it's slow for people like me, it's way too slow. I literally wake up and I am aware of our condition. That's what goes on. Inside that knowing, I still 
am happy to be alive, very happy. Um, I smile at the world, the world smiles back at me. I do some qigong, I do some stretching, I feel fantastic. I thank the world, I thank my God, I thank all those in my life for being here. I thank my cells, I thank my liver, my organs. And so there's a lot of celebration in the midst of a collective disaster that's, you know, in our midst. But Paul Hawken, on this show, fantastic environmental activist, writer par excellence, who is the author of Drawdown, and we spoke with him, as you recall. We spoke with his co-author, Catherine Wilkinson, about these matters. And he said something utterly, beautifully elegant and profound that I repeat to many people a lot. Global warming, is it happening to us or for us? It is the call to awaken to really appreciate the life we've been given and to do what we can to preserve it, to love it, love it alive. Do all we can to preserve our beautiful Mother Nature, which means also preserving ourselves. We are one and the same. It's not her and us. It's all together now. It's a system. It's truly holistic in nature. (laughs) The words help to convey the truth of the matter. Anyway, I think I have spoken enough about these matters for today. I hope I uh, both gave you a bone-chilling type of talk as well as a heartwarming kind of talk because it's really designed to do that. I'm going to urge you to really read Paul Hawkins' Drawdown and his prior books as well. And also, I can't wait to have uh, uh, Dar Jamal on. I'm really looking forward to it. And, well, you know, you can go back into our radio archive here at abetterworld.tv, abetterworld.tv, triple W dot, of course, and you will find any number of different uh, interviews and roundtable discussions on these subjects. And they're not just about banding about ideas for the sake of that. No, not at all. Underneath all these shows, honestly, is a call to action. And I, along that line, want to remind you all of the Pachamama Alliance uh, with which I am allied and a better world is. And if all goes as planned, this March I will be teaching another uh, round of what's called the Game Changer Intensive. This is a free, amazing, approximately 10-week course every week, and there are videos to watch and some articles to read and exercises to do, and one gets really in touch with the heartbeat of the earth. Pachamama means Gaia. That's what it means. It's in the Quechua language of the Andes and the Amazon. And this is a fantastic group of people. We've had them on the show. Lynn Twist, Bill Twist, Tracy Apple, uh, and a number of others who are leaders in the organization who are doing wonderful things to educate people about the seriousness of the situation. And, of course, that's what we do here every single week at A Better World. So I want to just remind you all that we are a 501c3. Your donations are so appreciated. And the best way to do that really is by emailing me at mjr at abetterworld.net, mjr at abetterworld.net. And I love hearing from you anyway. And we also have a weekly... uh, newsletter that goes out, which also at the website, www.abetterworld.tv, you can sign up for that newsletter. We'd love to have you part of our community and our family. Uh, 
also uh, my main livelihood is is counseling and coaching and stress management consulting using a sophisticated form of quantum biofeedback. And you are all welcome to contact me also by email at mjr at abetterworld.net or to call at 212-420-0800. That again is 212-420-0800. And we also have the Harmonic Energetic Balancing Program, which is a 24-7 energy balancing program that you just pay by the year at a very, very uh, advantageous rate. And it uses your photograph and bathes it, if you will, in frequencies that are healthy. We were talking about health before and getting reprogrammed. Well, this is a form of reprogram. So I want to bring that to your attention. And if you call or email, I'll certainly get you more information about that. It's also on that website as well as at www.mitchellrabin.com. That's M-I-T-C-H-E-L-L-R-A-B-I-N.com. Also to uh, let you know, we've got some dynamite products, uh, such as Purium, which is as pure as the driven snow. It make it goes beyond organic, and uh, it's really healthy. And we've had David Sandoval on talking about uh, the whole process of of growing and producing, and it's just the cleanest of the clean. So I just want to remind you of that. And for those of you who purchase $75 or more, you get $50 off by using our code, a better world, one word, a better world. So these are some of the things we're doing, my friends, to create a better world. And uh, you are listening and you're sharing these shows, these podcasts with your friends and family and foes. It's okay with me. I don't believe in that anyway. Uh, we can really uh, help to create a better world together. And it is happening. So on that note, again, thank you. This is Mitchell J. Rabin for Better World Radio. And I look forward to seeing you all next week.